Okay, number one. Which of the following terms is a synonym of divine aseity? Yeah, it's yeah. That's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah, A is probably our strongest synonym for aseity, but all of them, I think, sort of, sort of nuance what we mean by by aseity. It's it's the independence of God that means he doesn't, he isn't affected by anyone else. He doesn't. He's he's not can't be stopped by anyone else. So sovereignty and impassibility are part of the idea, but independence is probably the strongest synonym here that we have on the on the sheet. <clears throat> so God's knowledge and power grow day greater day by day. False. False. Good. Glad to hear all falses on that one. And that's because he's already infinite, right? Mm-hmm. So those those things can't increase or improve. Number three, God has no restrictions. False. False. Okay. Self-imposed. Okay, so he's those imposed by his own nature, his decree, his character. He's no external restrictions, perhaps we could say, but he does have restrictions. Then give me some reasons how an immutable God might change his mind, such as when he didn't fulfill his promise to destroy Nineveh in the book of Jonah. I gave about three three or four options there, so let's see if we can't come up with some of these. Really couldn't think of any. I was just think of his compassion. Okay. What about um, it's not really his mind that's changing, changing, it's the effect of his decrees based on what humans decide or change. Okay, so he's he's changing his his actions in order to be consistent with his character, so which doesn't change. So if they repent then he looks upon them differently than if they hadn't. So, so that's that. That was a reason we put down there. I think mine was kind of saying he can change because man changes. That immutability doesn't mean immobility. Right. Yeah. Said. Yes. Other possibilities, sir. What about the? Uh Anthropomorphism or anthropomorphism, he condescends to make himself known, even though he's not exactly that way. I'm not sure it necessarily works for this one, uh, but it does perhaps work sometimes. uh, You know, when we, uh, for instance, sometimes when we see God becoming angry or becoming enraged or his arms, these are these are ways to help us understand what he's like, but he's not. He's not actually that way. The other one that uh, uh, that I'm, I'm looking for here is that some of his his threats in this case were conditional. Okay, so there are mm. conditional statements that he makes. In fact, we pointed out that Jonah actually knew this. That's why he fled to Tarshish because he knew it was a conditional command, and so he didn't want to go preach to them lest they met the condition. <laughs> and so, so that was prob- perhaps the other one there. Okay. So uh, uh, when, I, when I was listening to that, I, the question occurred to me about um, the example of Jonah and the Ninevites. So the Ninevites wouldn't be able to repent apart from God's granting them that ability, right? Right. So 
know, it's just confusing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a larger topic here when we talk about uh, God's God's decree includes not only the ends but the means to the ends. It's sometimes some, sometimes what we say here. For instance, prayer. I mean, why do we pray? Because you know, it, it's not as though we really affect God in any way. So why do we pray? Well, the prayer is part of the means to the ends. Uh, God does answer prayers, um, and that's all built into the decrees that he made. It's a bit hard for us to understand because because, because of that, but... Uh, um, but uh, it, it, I think that this this falls into the same category here. Uh, and the same thing happens when we have that statement um, uh, that the uh, people of Tyre and Sidon would have repented had they received the revelation that the the folks at is it Cana or Capernaum had had. And he said, "Well, how how does how can he say that? I mean, these these people in Tyre and Sidon they were just as." As depraved as, as, as anybody. So God would have actually had to have done a work of grace in order for them to respond. But again, that's all wrapped up in the decree. The decree not only includes the, the, the saving, but also the, the repenting and the means to the repentance and the revelation involved. So it's, it's a big package deal and it's all ordained by God, but, uh, but it doesn't mean that the, uh, uh, the prayers and the witnessing are superfluous. It's all part of the decree that he, he has made. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No, I, I think I would just say that's just how God chose to do it. Right. God has chosen to, to work his will in our lives, thank whatever he does. And he chose certain means. We didn't make it the means, he chose them. And one of the means was he wants us to pray. And we can see reasons for that. He gets glorified. Right. We are changed, you know. But he chooses. He could just zap every, all the elect, you know, on a certain day. But he chose. He chooses the gospel. You know. I mean, well, like, you know, there's a lot involved in that. <laughs> sure. If you're going to have Christ dying for an atonement, you got you know. But but you wouldn't necessarily. You could do it different. I, I would think you might be able to do it different ways. I don't know. But he chose the means, didn't he? Right. So that is, that means that we, that it looks like he changes and it looks like he's, he's altering his plan based upon what we do and how we respond. But, but I was, you know, we had this question the other night (laughs) for those guys, you remember, and so we had some young men, and we had that same question, asking about. We weren't there, but your son asked about this <clears throat> sovereignty and and responsibility. You know, that's where it comes out in the sense that uh, somehow God's sovereign and responsible. You know, right. you know how do you how does that account with free will and, and things like that? That's a hard thing to to understand uh, how that. I had another uh, quick one. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you might be getting into this later, so I was just curious. Like when you were talking about how God can't do anything contrary to His nature, or um, so. It's, 
Would you say that the laws of logic are are a, re, a real thing, or um, like we wouldn't say that God is God is only bound by the laws of logic because the laws of logic are a description of God's character? Who He is, who right? He is. Yeah, it's not as though the laws of logic exist outside of Him and that He's bound to them. He actually. He actually created the laws of logic, or better, they're an extension of, of his own. So we wouldn't say that they they existed on their own. Well, even if they were they weren't created, like there wasn't a time when there was no laws of logic, and then a time when there were laws of logic. Right. Yeah. The laws of logic would be part of God's character. Okay. Good to move on then. Well, tonight uh, our topic here is the natural attributes of God. I don't know if we'll get through them all. In fact, I, that's possible. If we catch up, we will. But we'll see what happens here. Uh, natural attributes of God here. Again, we've already said that the categories of natural and moral overlap in God. It's morally requisite of God to have all of his natural attributes. Uh, But at the same time, it's probably best to differentiate between those attributes that are tied intrinsically to his essence, the, 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 the attributes that he holds uniquely. He doesn't share them in any sense. And then also the moral attributes, which are attributes which also are intrinsic, but which are most clearly seen by God's interaction with his creatures and which he shares with us to some degree. Okay, so that's, uh, so we, we've gone through the, uh, through the, uh, uh, transcendent adjectives. Now we look at how they apply in each of two realms, the natural and moral realm. First we want to look at space and then secondly at time. And those are the two bigs and, uh, a couple of others here along the way as well. But space and time are the big ones here when we talk about his natural attributes. And so we say God is independent, infinite, and immutable with respect to his being, which means he is omnipresent and eternal. That is, he's not limited by time. So he's not part of the space-time continuum. He created the space-time continuum. Uh, and essentially stands outside of it. So, our, can you explain yeah. it a little bit more? Uh, for, which, in which? the reading, uh, timelessness. Yeah. Um, I was reading, and this author is very gifted on uh, verbiage. And I was trying to understand what he said. <laughs> So, for us, we think of past, present, future. So, someone who is timeless, they don't have those distinctions. Right. It's not as though they can't understand them, but they're not bound by them. But there's, there, actually, that's, I mean, we, we start with, get into, yeah, we start with space and then we go to time. So, Perfect. so we'll, we'll get into that. But, uh, it, yeah. Well, you touched on that a little bit last week yeah. with the, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years of right, day. Exactly. Because there is no the time right. is complete. For him, the for time him. yeah, the, yeah, right. that you yeah, you were there for that. So a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, but it's not as though we can't distinguish between the two. 
Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Um, I guess my point is, or my question, is, but if you're going to get into it, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, let's do space and then we'll go to time. Somehow we somehow we somehow imagine space is a little bit easier. I think they're equally as difficult the doctrines, but somehow the time one, the time one is, is more difficult. Yeah. You know, you watch the Star Trek. You always like the ones where they were doing the time travel because those were the those <laughs> those were the most complicated ones. But yeah, uh, yeah with, with the God being, a, I mean, for me, God being a spirit, right? So then you think of space, right? And right. It's easier to yeah. wrap your mind around that, but you're right for the time. Challenging. Well, let's start with space here. Define omnipresence, by which we mean that God transcends spatial limitations and so is present simultaneously and eternally in all places with the whole of his being. So, <clears throat> sometimes we distinguish between the immensity of God, which God transcends space, and then the omnipresence of God in which that he fills space. Okay, we, we tend to think of the filling of space as, as, as omnipresence, but there's actually this dimension here where he actually exceeds space. It's hard for a guest, again, to understand this because, uh, I mean, what we tend to think of space as, as infinite in nature. It's not, but we don't know the edge of it. Uh, what would the edge of space look like? So kind of like Truman Show or something. Or he comes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't know what the edge of space would look like. We, we, uh, but uh, but God exceeds it, whatever the bounds of space are. Biblical proof: First Kings eight twenty seven. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. This is in the context of building the temple. So they're explaining here the purpose of the temple. It's not to house God as though he needed housing. Rather, it's a meeting place. In fact, that's what it was always called. It was always the, the tent of meeting was, was, the, was the meeting place prior to this. This is not a place where he's housed per se, but rather it's a place where he will meet with his people. He, and so the point is God can't be bound in a building, much less the earth, the heavens even, cannot contain him. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Am I a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? So this, this idea, sometimes you'll hear the, the term, the imminence of God, a God nearby, and then the transcendence of God, the God, he's a God far away. And why do we speak in it? Well, he's, every, he's everywhere, he's both here, and he's also in the most distant place. And so uh, so we talk of his imminence and his transcendence here, uh, as re- reflected here in this verse. Psalm 139, 7-10, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the morning and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. I feel that. I guess it's movie night here tonight, but uh, uh, that uh, Master and Commander. Ever watch that? The the subtitle is the Far Side of the Sea. It's a it's a far side of the earth. Isn't it? It's far side of the sea, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. I wouldn't know anything about movies, but. 
I think it's a, I thought it was a play on this this passage here. Christian college. It sort of plays in with that that evolution theme in there. That's a great book series. If you ever get a chance to read it. What? Master Commander is based on a book series. It's a book. Really? Books? It's like 13. So these are all versions. Far side of the world. Far side of the world, okay. Well, I was close. I said Earth. Yeah. Credit here, right? Half a point. Yeah, yeah. Half a point. I don't give you half a point. No half a point. One time, he won't give you a bone, will he? Yeah. All those years, he wouldn't give me a half a point. Oh yeah, now you just out of one. Yeah, he's not going to change. He comes the teacher. Waiting twenty years for that. <laughs> <laughs> Some qualifications then. It doesn't mean that God is everything. That everything is God, which is by definition pantheism. God fills the universe with His metaphysical essence, but not His physical essence. No physical entity is God, although sometimes God chooses to manifest himself through a physical entity, but he's not the physical entity. Uh, so, so God exceeds space. He doesn't localize himself in that sense. It also means that God is, God is a spirit being, which is a point that Mark just made here. Uh, and, and, and omnipresence means more than just that. There are other spirit beings, such as angels and demons, but they're not omnipresent. I think sometimes we think that, right, about Satan, that he's omnipresent just as God is, but he's not. He's localized. Now, it's hard to know exactly what that means with a a spirit being, because spirit beings don't take up space, and yet they're localized. Remember uh, when uh, Michael was attempting to get to Daniel, and he was he was delayed by three weeks. So apparently he he has to he has to take time to get from point A to point B, and he's at one place and has to move to another. How exactly that works? It's it's a little bit beyond me here, but uh, but they're not they're not omnipresent. Now God is God's everywhere present. So, though though invisible, these entities are in some sense localized. Thirdly, yeah. I'm sorry, so just, just taking another point. Um, reading through one of the Gospels. So, with Christ casting out um, the demons and that individual, and then allowing them, they're begging him not to be sent into the abyss. Right. And then, now, so why has it thought, why would they have to be cast into that herd of swine? And why couldn't they leave and go? Yeah, they yeah. occupy a certain space. Or, That's you know. a good question, and we got the same thing with the uh, with the you know the one that was thrown out, and then wanders the earth looking for another mm-hmm. host, and yeah. and finally ends up coming back and bringing seven seven of his yeah. some of his yeah. seven of his friends with him. Or, uh, so uh, apparently they they do seek some sort of mm-hmm. host of some sort. Um, I'm not. It seemed to be a shortcoming of them, but uh, but uh, they seem to uh, to latch onto hosts. And why they do that, it's hard to know. Maybe they just want to live out their their dreams and fantasies. 
It's hard to know exactly why that is, but it does seem like some of them do seek out hosts. Letter C, um, omnipresence does not mean that God, part of God is in one place and part of him is another, or that he is thinly spread out over the whole universe. He is everywhere present in the whole of his being. Uh, so he's the whole of him is in this room, just as it is everywhere. Letter D, omnipresence does not merely mean that the evidences of God's presence are everywhere, he is everywhere, not just his laws, you know. He is everywhere. Omnipresence, fifthly here, does not mean that God manifests himself uniformly throughout his universe. So, for instance, he does not dwell on earth as he does in heaven. And we talk, we talk about where is God, we say God is in heaven. Why do we say that? Because God's everywhere, right? So why do we say that God's in heaven? Well, we say that because there's apparently a greater manifestation, a more glorious manifestation of God in heaven than he exhibits here on earth. But that doesn't mean he's more there or less there or less here. Uh, it just means he manifests himself more greatly. Same thing. This this comes comes back to us when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Right? Uh, in, in some senses, we think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we say, well, isn't the Holy Spirit everywhere? He's as much in any of us as he is in any other unbeliever, or even in this table here. He's everywhere, right? But the reason we say that there's an indwelling work of the Holy Spirit is that he manifests himself in greater ways in the believer than he does in someone who's not a believer, or our desk here, Right? So that's, that's what we mean here. It's, it's a manifestation of his presence, not a greater expression of his, his, his presence. He's everywhere. Furthering this point, we also know that God does not displace anything by his being. As Sam Storm says, God is where everything else is. Okay, so it's not as though, you know... We stuck this Bible in the lectern, so God had to move out of the way in order for it to to, to make room for it. Now God is God is where everything else is as well. So God is omnipresence; His the whole of His being is everywhere. Okay, does that follow? Uh, and, and I, I didn't notice I didn't say. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, so that's that's the omnipresence of God. Some, some questions that perhaps come up with this. Uh, how can God be in hell? Psalm 139, verse 8, If I make my bed in hell or the under-earth or the nether world, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And we tend to think of hell as a place where God isn't. In fact, some actually will define, I think incorrectly, will define hell as the absence of God. But that's not true. Firstly, because God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. So the second death, which confines the believer to hell, is defined as the permanent separation of the human soul from God. In fact, one of the most significant torments experienced in hell is the withdrawal of God's influence on the soul. However, it doesn't mean that God is actually absent doesn't mean he's suffering, of course. 
But his presence is still there in that he oversees the eternal operations of hell. He doesn't simply lock them up and forget about them and throw away the key. No no hellbound creature will ever have the pleasure of fellowship with God, though. And that's that's really what hell is, right? It's it's not so much that God isn't there, but he is tantalizingly close, but completely you know, shut off from us. We can never have a relationship, those who are in, in hell. So, uh, so you know, hell is actually worse than the absence of God. It's the presence of God, but never a relationship. So all you are, you, all you are experiencing then is the eternal wrath of God rather than a benevolent, fel- any benevolent fellowship. Okay, so he is in hell. He's in the lake of fire, in fact, I would say, beyond this, because hell probably, in this case, is probably Sheol, the place of the dead. Uh, he's, he's in the permanent place of the dead, uh, the, the lake of fire, as we sometimes call it. Um, so he's, he's everywhere. In fact, that's what makes it so ghastly. Second question here, how can we describe an omnipresent God as drawing near? We've got songs about that, draw me nearer. Uh, and yeah, nearer my God to thee. And we find verses like these here talk about, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4, 8 says. So how is it that we can, God can draw near or be distant if he's everywhere? Well, I think perhaps we've already answered the question here, but let's formalize it here. That God is described as being near or far should not be taken in a spatial sense. Nor, however, should it be understood in in a strictly existential sense as though his presence may be felt or otherwise known by extrasensory means. I think that's what some people mean by it. I just sort of got a tingle because he he felt near to me. Uh, that's 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 a, a wrong way of thinking here. Instead, God drawing near should be understood in the Hebrew sense of coming near for blessing or for judgment, one or the other. In this case, when God draws near, and in the positive, if you draw near to God, he draws near to you. It's the positive sense here. If you, if you, uh, if you, uh, if you extol God, worship God, bless God in that sense, then he, re- and he reciprocates by blessing or enriching you. So drawing near then is an expression of divine approval or favor or blessing, not some sort of a locative thing or a mystical thing. It's not something that you can sense or or feel in any way. Uh, it's it's actually him drawing. The, the idea of him drawing near is that he is blessing you in terms of uh, you know in any number of ways. Okay, so does that make sense? Does that follow what I've said there? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we. We use kind of mystical language at time, uh, but uh, I think this, you know, that's part of the value of this this kind of an exercise. We recognize that God doesn't move in and out. But on the other hand, you know, people do have a real reactions or emotional reactions to something God does. Sure. You know? And so, and th- those that's why they can be somewhat legitimately confused, right? I mean, in the sense, you know, people. True. Can, Experience from Scripture or something God's uh, 
God's uh, love and compassion yeah. in time of death or something, and they may have an emotional reaction and sure. say God is near. But as you say, it's not really <clears> that. <throat> but and they probably confuse the two. But still, there is a, a, often results from yeah God drawing. Uh, divine favor and obedience and blessing can make us feel good. Yeah. Uh, so there's no doubt about that. But that, but to 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 think of think of that as some sort of a uh, you know some sort of a mystically greater presence of God is is really the wrong way to think about it because God is everywhere. Okay. Practical values. Negatively, no one can escape from God. Jonah makes that quite clear. Positively, the believer can never be abandoned. And can even be the dwelling place of God. So, uh, so this is all stems out of this om, om, omnipresence of God. Thoughts, additional thoughts on the omnipresence of God? Okay, let's get to God's relationship with time then. This is the, the tough one, right? But let's start with a definition here. As the eternal God, God is the author of time. And his existence cannot be measured by time. The past, the present, and the future are all possessed by God in one indivisible present. Okay, so, you know, we, we, we talk about past, present, future. God can accommodate us in thinking in those terms, but he's not bound by time in the same way we are, nor does time pass for him as it does for us since that thousand years as a day. So would that be like the B theory of time? I'm sorry? Is that, would that be considered like the B theory of time where God is looking at time like you would look at a ruler where he can move anywhere along yeah, I, I use I use the illustration of a telestrator. Remember the old telestrator? I, I guess they still do things like that. It's not quite as mechanical as it used to be, I guess. But you know, John Madden used to, you know, he you know he he could he could back the you know make the make the video go backwards, and he could slow it down, and he could he could insert his pen and draw you know circles around something and slide it forward and circle something else. Well, I mean, I know it's a poor illustration here, but I think it's something like perhaps what God would be like in terms of his relationship to actual time as we know it, that he can, he can, he can pretty much insert himself anywhere in time. So his omniscience is the same in past, present, or future. Right, right. And that's part of the reason he can't know more or less, right? Right, okay. So that, that makes... You, you summed it up there real, real succinctly. Uh, future are possessed by God. <clears throat> this past, present, future are possessed by God in one indivisible person. That's Dr. McCune's definition, oh, so, so I won't take right. <laughs> more. So, so then God, would we say that God is in time the way... In the sense that we are, or does God have His own time? Well, we're go, as we're going to see here, this becomes a very diff, There's a little bit of a difficulty here when it comes to Christ, because the God-Man is apparently bound in some sense by time. But remember, this is this is this is a crystal. The Christological problem is is there in a number of these attributes. 
uh, because I mean Christ learned things too. He wasn't as 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 Jesus. He didn't know all facts. In fact, he says so on a couple of occasions. But we understand that as he was growing up, he had to learn his ABCs, the same as the rest of the kids. So he didn't know everything when he's born, uh, and so. So we've got a lot of these attributes that cause us trouble when it comes to to Jesus, and this is another one. We'll get to that in, in a minute here, but uh, but I think for now, I think let, let's put let's put out, make the case, and then we'll start dealing with some of the with the qualifications, exceptions, and explanations here along the way. But you know, on that time thing, um, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the ruler, but. Uh, I wonder if that's pro- well. I guess what I'm what I want to say is, you know, time travel is not possible for us. There's no such thing as time travel. That is because, as I understand, it, there is there is no future. God knows the future. He's decreed the future, but there is no future. There's nothing happening. I'm not. There's no me living twenty years in the future. So do you agree with that? So that so the ruler thing, or the telestrator thing, has a problem in the sense that it sort of presupposes there's a Bill Combs 20 years out there. But there is no Bill Combs 20 years out there. It hasn't happened. You know, now God knows he can see the film in a sense. You know, am I right here or not? You know, obviously there's no time travel. Right. There's not, not, there's not time travel, but that's a good question. I mean, in the mind of God, the future has happened. Exactly. Well, I think any and he knows the sequence of it, the chronology. It is right. it is a chronology. I agree. There's a ruler in the sense he can see where we'll all be next week. He sees it, but it it's not actually real in any sense. As the past is real, there was a real past, real events. What do you anyway? Well, anyway, to try to describe it or explain it is simply trying to make our minds understand it. You know, I mean, right? I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm it seems like they're over the future. In in, in a sense, it all, to to God, the future has happened. True. True. So, I'm not sure. Yeah. But would we say that it happened yeah, God, only because we know that? that God has decreed something, so therefore it necessarily must happen. Yeah. Not that it has actually happened. Exactly. Exactly. But I don't I, think it actually happened. But I think in the mind of God, it has. To for God, it has. So I wonder if he. he well, yeah, because he knows the days of our lives, right? So he knows how much of a future I have. Yeah, is it is it just that he knows how things are going to well, unfold, or are they omniscience with <laughs> the decree? You know, I mean, are they the same? Right. Or? Is the decree the same as the omniscience? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, what the, I'm saying. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, is the I'm, is the decree in the mind the same as the decree unfolded? Exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure. I just don't tell it. Don't tell us because we want to watch Star Trek and see. <laughs> we, want, we, want, we want to travel through time and all that. <laughs> Only back. <laughs> Fix those mistakes we made. Yeah. Well, um, and thinking about time too, so it wouldn't seem that that God then at this point we're at right now would reach back and change anything in the past, right? So that's already happened. But he could change something 
No, it's, it's decreed that he can't yeah. change, and so nothing can change, remember. Because it's all decreed. Well, that's true. But again, it, but going back to the conversation about the changes, right? Somebody repents. Now I know it's all decreed, yeah. right? And, and I think we're already starting to grapple with the whole idea that all of these these attributes yeah. intersect. They yeah. inform each other. Yeah. So... He knows, I mean, the fact that he knows all things and has decreed all things mm-hmm. and is there spatially and temporally, they, they all sort of come together to to give it. So God, no, God can't go backward and change anything. Mm-hmm. And he can't go forward and change anything because his decree is fixed in eternity past. But Nothing. This, but this time travel thing is, <laughs> is based upon time. True. You've got to be in time. Now, God right. is outside of time. So time travel is not an issue with him, but for us, that's why I say it, there's no future. There's no future because time hasn't it hasn't happened yet. You know, that yeah, no, not for you know, us. Human, right. Not for us. I mean, that's all we know. We're all everything we talk about is limited by time. Yeah, we don't understand anything beyond time. And somehow this seems more difficult for us than mm-hmm. being outside of space, but. Yeah. But really, they're they're the same. They're the same problem. Just somehow, time seems more more difficult for us. I think it's partially partly partly because of how how we think sequentially. Yes, the sequence, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, right, that's the point here. Time, as we know it, is marked by a sequence of events, and with God, there is no sequence. God is above time in that sense. Man can be said to be above time in a very finite sense. We can aspire, we can think about the way it's going to be, and we can remember the way it has been. But that's a far cry from actually doing time travel, right? But God is above time in an actual sense. Biblical proof, God is called the El Olam, the God of the Ages. Uh, speaks not only to the entirety of time, but his lordship over the concept of time. He is the god of the ages. His name, even, I am, gives some indication of his being a living person, but also of his relationship to time. He exists in an eternal now. Remember there, John eight fifty eight, uh, when he says, before Abraham existed, I, I am. Well, you got the you got your tense wrong there, but no, because for God, that is an appropriate way of speaking. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, it's hard to know whether he's making a reference here to his 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 ah temporality or whether he's just trying to sort of identify himself as Yahweh. I'm, I'm guessing it's the latter, but effectively he does both. Um, Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting God. Actually, there is no you are in the text there. It's just it's just God is. Uh, and uh, from, from time, from the beginning of time to the end of time, God is. First, uh, Corinthians 2 7, which is is quite a paradox here, right? God's decree extends before time. I mean, if you think about that, it doesn't make any sense because time is a sequence of events, and so there can't be a 
before time any more than it can be an after time because uh, because it, and the idea is something outside of time is what he's he's trying to communicate there. Revelation 1, I'm the Alpha and Omega, who was and who is and who is to come. So he's all, all three tenses at once. So let's make a few qualifications, some nuances, some objections here along the way, because this is this is a very difficult thing. See if we can answer at least a couple, some of the questions. I know we're not going to solve all of our problems here tonight, but, but perhaps to answer a couple of questions. Qualifications, firstly, time is a system of measurement marked by succession events in a changing universe. But because God is immutable and infinite and unchanging, he exists outside his transient universe, it is necessary to say that he also exists outside of time as we know it. Time began when God created it, just as space did. There wasn't time before time. Again, paradoxically speaking. Although some of the passages above convey something of a temporally linear sense. You know, God extends forever this way and extends forever that way. And we sort of see a line in our minds here, uh, reflecting the vantage of the human author. These probably should be uh, understood as instances of anthropomorphism. God is not merely everlasting, existing at all times, but he's also eternal in that he exists outside and above time. Okay, so it's not just an it's not just an endless timeline here. It's sort of I, I, maybe I'm making a distinction that isn't there, but that's when I think of everlasting, I always think it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going. Where eternal has, in, at least in my mind, has that sense of just you know transcending time uh, rather than having a, a, a forever sequence. Now maybe I'm making a distinction that isn't there, but at least in, in you know, maybe it's an English nuance. But you know, it's, it's really impossible to even talk about the, I was just thinking, we are, the common expression an eternity past. Eternity past. We're trying to, right. we're trying to get past, we're trying to get before time. And we say, in eternity past, God did this. Well, what does that mean? Right? What does yeah. that mean? Except we're just trying to say, okay, before time as we know it, I guess, right? Is that what yeah. we're trying to do? When there was no time. When there was no time, there was time. <laughs> In eternity past, you know, when there was no time, there was there was something. There was still something. But, but was it? <laughs> yeah. Does God having to, us being in the, our time and God having his own time being, is there, some, is there some? Is there some? <laughs> is there some difficulty that we can't get by by saying that God God can have His own time? Before you answer that, just remind me: isn't there some debate about like Feinberg's about some theologians that said God is within time? Yeah, some some would say that God is within time. Yeah, God is within time. Yeah, yeah. I think I put some. There's a. There's a, actually a Four Views book that's out there. Yeah. Paul Helm is probably the one who's done the most work on this. Well, Eternal what, God. What the Feinberg, that, you know, what's his name? Feinberg has a class at Trinity on God in time or something. Remember Does he? That? Yeah, because I think, I think Sam took it or something. God in time. <laughs> Ask your boss. Ask <laughs> him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How, much, how, much time, how much time do you have? Yeah, yeah. 
you, John, you still had a question? I'm sorry, John. No, that's okay. So, like, William, like Craig's big objection to the, what we're describing is that essentially he's saying that if God is in, not in time, he cannot act. Because in order to act, there has to be a sequence of before and after. So that's why he says that he can't hold to the what he calls the B theory of time, which is what we're, we believe. But and his other objection is he said he says that God, there can't be two separate times. God can't have his time, and we exist in the time that God created. But I don't understand why why that can't be. Well, I'm not sure I have a problem. That that second objection doesn't resonate as much with me because it's not that I'm saying he's got his own separate time. It's just that he actually can exist outside of time, and we're the ones who are time bound. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying, I, I wouldn't say that he's in a different time. He's just above time. He's not bound by it. But, but you're right, that, that, that previous argument is, is difficult. I think it, it rivals that, the question of the person of Christ. I mean, is, is Christ eternally dying? Is Christ eternally on the cross dying and over and having continuously? Well, no, we know that that was an event that happened within history and it's done and uh, and in some sense that Christ can look at that and, that and say it's past tense it's it's done but it's so it, it does create a difficulty right that God could act within time and then yet not get past it as it were Am I wrong to think that only it's his humanity that couldn't get that can't get past it? I mean, he was a unique being sure. because he is God, which is timeless, right? And he was man, which is bound by time. Yeah. So, so, so the the human Jesus is time and space bound. Um, I mean, I can undoubtedly go quickly from place to place, but it is, he is time and space bound again. But, but it's. It, I think you're act, act, asking a little bit more than that. How could God even act in any sense? Um, but from, that sounds like we're imposing our time frame, our time limitations on God. Well, I think if you, you look know, at time, it's just a description of a sequence of events. So as soon as there is an action, there is time. Yeah. So action is movement, and movement takes time. Mm-hmm. Right. Is the point. So, but that the problem man prays there is a problem that we have throughout theology where somebody says that just can't be. Right. It just can't be that God has decreed the course and outcome of all events. There's a lot of theologians who say that just can't be. And that's what he's saying here. That they just want I just can't and you know, it's tough. I agree, it's really tough, but you know, a lot of people say it can be, you know. <laughs> But who's right? Yeah, right. And then really, it's just limitations of the finite mind. Right? Yeah. Well, that's what we would say. I mean, he's, he he seems to think. Yeah. Craig thinks. Well, that's just too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't can't hang. I can't yeah. handle that. Yeah, yeah. He can't wrap his mind around it. Yeah. Okay. Let her be here. That God does not regard time as we do does not mean that he can't interact with temporal beings or that he is careless in his expression of temporal realities. 
that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day doesn't mean that God can't differentiate between the two. And this is all, I mean, this is an argument that's sometimes used for saying that there's no millennium because a thousand years is like a day. So when God talks about a millennium, it could be a thousand years or it could be a day or it could be, you know, multiply out the other direction and be, you know, eons. Uh, and so God can't tell, well, God can tell the difference between the two. And when he's trying to condescend to explain something to us, he uses realities that we can understand. And so that thousand years is a thousand years, not just an indefinite period of time. A few objections, and some of these we've already raised here. Timelessness is sometimes uh, regarded as a Greek philosophical concept and not a biblical one. And it is true that uh, it was an idea that was in Pythagoras, Parmenides, and Plato. They developed a rather advanced concept of timelessness well before the concept appears in the theology of the church. But the idea is not without biblical precedent. That God exists before time does not make sense apart from the idea of timelessness. This is what Augustine says. If you are before time... It is not in time that you precede it. If this were so, you would not be before time. You have to read that about six times, right, <laughs> to, 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 to get that. But 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 his, his point being that God is, when, when we say that God is before time, we are saying that God is outside of time. Not that he was before it, per se, because that's a paradox, right? It's not, it's not part of the, it's not part of the sequence of events. It's, it's above the sequence of events, if we can put it that way. Secondly, here, the certain nature of God's decree at minimum strongly suggests timelessness here. Um, sometimes we talk about the proleptic use of the aorist here. And I'm, I'm getting outside of my field here, so I'm going to get myself in trouble here. But you know, sometimes we find in the scriptures uh, the something that is so certain uh, that it actually appears in the past tense. You know, that God has seated us in the heavenlies. They say, no, he hasn't. <laughs> We're still seated right here on this table. Um, and yet we can we can speak it, get the, the scripture writers can speak in those terms because of the certainty. And how can one be that certain if it is a if it's a sequence that has actually hasn't happened yet, even in the mind of God? Well it has. So for God, he can speak in the past tense of something that for us is future. So we talk about the er, the, the proleptic aorist, but actually it's it's not really a, a tension for God being a, a timeless God. And uh, and I know I, I jumped out of my uh, my my area here because now we're going to get the whole question of time and aspect and all that. But it does seem like the the idea of of speaking in past tense of future realities can only make sense if it's already happened in the mind of God. Does that follow? Thirdly here, God's other attributes also seem to reflect both a quantitative and qualitative distinction between God and man. His immutability especially seems to demand the absence of temporal succession. Okay, So perhaps partly an answer to what Craig says here. Um, that God's immutability, you, you, I mean, you could say the same thing about, 
the changelessness of God as we would about the timelessness of God when it comes to action. Uh, you would say, well, if God acts, then he must change. You know, if, if God acts, then he must not be bound by time. Uh, and neither one of them follows, even though both are difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Another objection that's sometimes uh, lodged here, God must not be timeless since he acts and reacts within time. Here, this is Craig's argument. So God created and then afterward declared it to be good. He prepared the prophets for their ministries before they were born. So I say here, God immutably and eternally decrees without time what will occur in time. That is to say, while he manifests himself in time, these actions represent no actual change or succession in God. That God is not bound by time does not restrict him from manifesting himself within time, just as he manifests himself in space. I mean, the fact that he manifests himself in space does not mean he's now a spatial being. Uh, So the fact that he manifests himself within time does not make him a temporal being. So again, these, these... yeah, the, the 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 problem is is something that's difficult here, but it, it touches more than just time. It 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 touches not only time but also space. It, it it touches action, decree. All of these all of these attributes I think fall under the same same difficulty. And so I, I'm not really inclined to think of this as a an insurmountable problem any more than the rest of the attributes are. Letter C, the incarnation, is sometimes said, is just that there's absolute proof here. Uh, the, the insuperable barrier, barrier to divine timelessness. God Christ is clearly not timeless in that he became, not be became, but he became in time what he was not in eternity. And that this new divine manifestation continues permanently into an interminable temporal future. Further, if timelessness can be predicated of God, then Christ is being eternally humiliated and killed in a timeless now, which is unconscionable. We find, again, these sequences. Where, therefore, since he has been, has died and risen and rose again, now these things, so, so it's, it's, those things are behind him now, so he's gone through these things in, in the space of time, and now he has been exalted. Uh, so there's a sequence for Jesus, certainly. I say this is the most difficult tension for the idea of divine atemporality, but it's not a hopeless one. In keeping with the immediately previous answer, we offer here that there was no point in time in which the second person of the Trinity was unconscious of the idea of incarnation or unwilling to take on humanity. Further, it's important to note that God did not technically become a man. Okay, we, we sometimes use that language, but really he, he clothes himself with humanity, almost like a coat or something. He took on flesh, which means that there was no change in himself. Okay, We don't want to say that he simply appeared to be human. At the same time, we don't want to say that Jesus is the sum total of what God is, because the second person of the Trinity is everything he always was, even after the Incarnation. Uh, the second person of the Trinity is still omnipresent and omniscient and omnitemporal, uh, even though uh, Jesus Christ has been localized 
As such, the action of the Incarnation presents no more difficult than any other divine action, although it seems more difficult for us. Some practical values. There are the everlasting arms in times of crisis. There's comfort in the midst of the brevity of life. And this, I think the beauty of this in Psalm 90 is this is a statement that's made here uh, when Moses is, is sitting on the mountainside about to die and he's realizing he's not going to get to the promised land. And he says, nonetheless, there's comfort even in the midst of the brevity of life. And Psalm 102, though we die, God will not. God outlives us all and brings everything about that's supposed to happen. Okay? Does that make sense? No, but other questions? Okay, let's see if we can't at least get a good start on here on the, on the, uh, Next point here. God's independent, infinite, immutable with respect to knowledge. So we've gone through the ontological realm. Now we've gotten to the epistemological realm. Okay? So we say here he's omniscient. It's actually another point here, the omnisapience, which is very closely related to it, uh, and the incomprehensibility of God. But omniscience is probably the big one here. What we mean by this is that God's knowledge includes all things, past present, and future, immediately. So, an eternal now. Immediately, simultaneously, and eternally, whether things actual or possible. God's understanding has no limit. God knows all things. It's reflected in his knowledge of the material realm. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. No creature is hidden from him. All things are naked and open to him. In the animal realm, God's intimately aware of the death of small birds. In the underworld, Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. God knows everything that's going on there. In the thoughts of man, uh, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Everyone's heart. Peter says this as well. You know, he's, you know we, we might get confused about what we know. We, and so we ask God, you know, do you love me, Peter? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't know. You know all things. You know better than I do. You know, that's at the end of Psalm 51. Search me and know my thoughts. Try me and know my, uh, my heart. Know me, know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Because even even we are self-deceived about, about the knowledge of our own selves. God knows ourselves better than we know ourselves. <coughs> He knows the minutiae of personal life. Numbers are hairs. It seems like useless knowledge here, but he knows how, how many hairs we all have. It's a little harder for some of you, easier for others. And he also knows all possibility to know what would have happened had things happened unfolded differently. <laughs> you have to be personally abused in this class, too. <laughs> It's by choice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now typically you don't have trouble with the uh, definition, but then when we get into the nuancing and the objections, we actually find that there are some difficulties here. When we say that God's knowledge is immediate, simultaneous, and eternal, we mean that it's not derived 
discursive, or successive. Which means he didn't learn anything. He did, he, that's what we mean by discursive. He doesn't. He, it's it's not by analogy to something outside of him. There's no sequence of events that actually bring him to a point of greater knowledge. He doesn't learn things. His knowledge is coextensive with his decree. He not only has all knowledge, he is all knowing. Okay, having all knowledge could perhaps be thought of as I know everything that I possibly could know at the present time. Uh, but God's knowledge is, exceeds that. He not only knows everything that could be known now, uh, but he knows all things, past, present, and future. Uh, so Isaiah 46, I think, reflects this. I make known the end from the beginning. So I think from the standpoint of the beginning, I can make the end known. From ancient times, I make things known what is still to come. Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. So again, his, omnis his omniscience and his, his, uh, his decree and even, even here probably his temporality, his atemporality all sort of, you know, cobbled together here. The Lord knows all things from of old, uh, from eternity past, as we sometimes say. Secondly, we qualify here that God knows all possibilities is not to suggest that he knows possibilities as potential certainties. Okay. What, what we mean by that is that sometimes God can say this is something that it, had things been differently, this is what would have happened. But he would never say this could happen. Okay. There's a, bit, there's a you know, world difference between that W and that C, right? Uh, it's not as though he's saying that this is something that might happen, but this is something that would have happened had circumstances been different. Okay, uh, So he knows as certainties, he knows certainties as certainties and possibilities as possibilities. He never knows certainties as potential possibilities here. Okay, he knows all things that will happen because of foreordination. He knows what would have happened had things been ordered differently, but there's no sense in which he knows what could happen in terms of genuine contingency. It might unfold this way, it might unfold a different way. Certainly there's no sense here in which we can predicate any sort of middle knowledge of possible worlds from which God capriciously chooses in the progressive development of his divine decree. Now, this is now we talked about a Calvinistic form of middle knowledge here a couple of weeks ago here, but this is the the what's sometimes called Molinism, that that God has you know a, a you know infinite number of possibilities he can choose from, and as he and as he works his way through, he he selects uh, going going through it. But no, 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 that's that's not the way it is. There's really only one way things can unfold, and that's the the way he's decreed. Thoughts here? It's going back to that time question. No, I, mean, I, 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 no, uh, I was thinking that if God's knowledge is immutable and he knows all things from the time that he decrees it, then 
how do we escape that it's a fatalism that there there is no there is no freedom or choice in anything, in any decision or any action. Right. Again, because the decree includes freedom and means. And again, that, I mean, it's a very difficult question. I'm not, not saying this is an easy question, but the answer is going to sound like a broken record. <laughs> because because God decrees not only the ends, but also, but also incorporates the means and the freedom of his creatures, which is real. Uh, to to arrive at those ends. Uh, now, how, now how, how that all works is, is very difficult to, to understand. So but, is it possible that it, it maybe not a full-blown Molinism, but somehow that God takes into it, knowing this cause-and-effect cause, cause and effect world that he's created and knowing um, individually each person that will ever be born. That, yeah. That's part of his decree. That right. I mean, that, that's that's see, that's that's where's you know his his Calvinistic view of middle knowledge is basically what you just described there. That because God created all people and all things and all animals and everything, and He knows them intimately far better than we even know ourselves, He can actually make an absolutely perfect prediction of what you are freely going to choose because he knows you that well uh, it's, it's now again this is not a middle knowledge that involves a guess it's a certainty for him but it, it but it's it's at least one sort of model for explaining it I'm not sure it's necessary but it's actually a model that's out there uh, but in some sense though our freedom is preserved and uh, uh, our actions are real uh, our choices are, are 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 not phantoms here. Nonetheless, God's decree will unfold perfectly. Fred, I'm not I'm not getting any answers beyond that. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know if you have anything more to say. Really Did Calvin ever address this question, like that, this discussion we just had? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, I mean, this kind of a discussion's in many of your best systematic theologies, yes. But but it, it comes down, doesn't it, to can you accept this? Exactly. In other words, if you can accept this idea that God has decreed the course and outcome of all events, and we still have this spontaneity of free will, you know that we believe. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. You believe that's what the Bible teaches, yeah. but. Obviously, others can't. They can't. They say, no, I can't. So they go to other, they go to Arminianism or open theism, which says God doesn't even really know. Right. That uh, they say, if there's really such a thing as freedom, free will, God couldn't know. You can't know what a truly free will. So we say, we just said back when we were discussing that, well, we're not that free. (laughs) You know? God is free in the libertarian. He's not using free in the libertarian sense, but he's he's freer than we are. But but they want, you know. It, I guess it's if you if, if you if you're focused on freedom and free will, then you just can't accept sovereignty and God in control and God decree. Yes. The Arminian has a middle view here that he's going to get to, which says God just knows, 
but he does determine. Right. And the open theist says, well, I can't even accept that. God doesn't even know. God doesn't even know. Doesn't that make him smaller than he is by saying he... He's saying he can't know where he doesn't know. He's only com- smaller. Call him I don't want a small guy. He's only competent. He's only competent guy. <laughs> yeah, that's their term. I, I don't have competent. any problem yeah. accepting that he knows. He knows exactly where I am right now. Yeah. Because that's where he chose for me to be. Right. Could it have been something different? Only by his design. You know, I could be sitting with somebody in a totally different. You know, better the, or worse. Yeah, but this is more a question of where you will be, not too much where you are. <clears throat> so, so how play into uh, his you know, his moral will and his sovereign his sovereignty. Right, right. I mean, the moral will simply de- determines what you ought to do, at least in terms of moral moral choices. We're really talking about his sovereign will here, and all of this discussion here. Which allows for our freedom. To yes, in some sense, we have freedom. He has sovereignty. We have freedom, and exactly how we can even have freedom. So we we choose to sin, right? Which he doesn't tempt us, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we do. I, the question is how. And the question is, how can then the other side says, how can we have this freedom if God has has a decree? Right. God, that's what makes God God. Yeah, <laughs> it's real simple. I mean, that's what that's what a kindergartner would say. That's what makes God I God. Know, but a lot of people just can't buy that. Well, that's you've been taught. That's your simpleness. All your Christian That's your simpleness. Yeah, rebellion. Yeah, right. I know. It's just those finite limitations. The first time I heard it, you know, I just. Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, this is crazy. As long as we can show that there's no logical contradiction, then is the best course of, for us to take is just to say this is what Scripture teaches, oh, and that it's a paradox. And just leave well, it mystery. Do you use the word mystery? Or? I don't typically just because of the yeah. biblical uses. Yeah, right, but but yeah, there's. There's inscrutability. There's inscrutability. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good discussion.